Welcome to Harvest Beyond Sunday, a podcast that seeks to equip and inform the members of Harvest Church. My name is Jamie Trussell. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor and elder here at Harvest Church. And this week, I'm joined by our Discipleship Communities Pastor, Wes Selectman. Wes, good morning. Good morning, Jamie. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining me on this week six of the gospel journey. The gospel journey being kind of our in-house discipleship tool that we want to get in uh, groups centered around God's Word, led by His Spirit as we walk together, uh, hopefully being more and more conformed into the image of Christ. And we begin week six towards the end of the book of Judges. And you know, one of the refrains we see in, throughout Judges West is this idea of everyone doing what was right in their own eyes. And, uh, and ultimately, that goes all the way back to the the garden of eden that that's that's where humanity will tend to go is to cast off what god says replace it with what we say and think is good right and true see that in the garden see the tower of babel we see it here in the book of judges and we see it here particularly in judges 19 in a pretty horrific way yeah we're not starting off with a feel-good story of the bible here uh when you study judges like you said, the sin cycle just gets worse and worse, and we're really at maybe one of the lowest points in all of Israel's history when we get to this story. A bit of a famous story that um, has been scrutinized recently for uh, some of the sin that's displayed here and, uh, and, and dissected. recently read an article in a paper just wondering what is the sin that's really depicted here that's so gross um, and a debate around it. But any, anyway... It's a it's a horrible horrible story. There's really no innocent character in it, and we see pretty much sin at all levels uh, here in Judges 19, doing doing what they want rather than what the Lord wants. Oh yeah, and I asked. think uh, one thing that makes it a particularly damning story for the state of Israel's you know, faithfulness to God's covenant with them is the reality that there's a Levite that's front and center as it relates to a lot of what's happening here in the story, and so. Uh, you have who should be kind of shining the light forward, leading the people into God's truth. And you know, at this point, now you've got a Levite with a concubine and everything kind of flows out from there. You want to, uh, uh, Wes, I think maybe helpful to give a quick two minute overview of just kind of the nuts and bolts of, of how Judges 19 flows. Yeah, so we get this Levite and his concubine, and they are uh, traveling through the nation of Israel. So they're not outside of the boundaries of Israel, uh, and and they're they're journeying uh, from Ephraim or into the uh, land of Benjamin. And as they're traveling, they're looking for a place to to stay and journey, and they're looking for some hospitality. And that was a normal uh, practice that was designed by the Lord. When a sojourner comes into your land, you're to welcome them in, especially if they're uh, Jewish and they're, uh, and especially if it's a Levite, right? And so he comes into this town, Gibeah, uh, and he's just kind of hanging out in the courtyard. There's no one to show him any hospitality. And, and another man, another sojourner from uh, the hill country of Ephraim shows him hospitality, says, come uh, into to my home and I'll take care of you. And then it says some worthless fellows, um, the men of that city, gathered mm-hmm. around the home and demanded uh, that they meet the Levite, uh, and that he come out 
um, and, and the scriptures say that they wanted to know him. Yeah, which is, yeah, you know, Old Testament idiom for uh, sexual engagement. Right, sexual engagement. And this is not altogether different than the type of language interaction you have even in, in Genesis with Sodom and Gomorrah. That's right. A very strong parallel there. Uh, we're going to move into Samuel. We'll see uh, that word know uh, her as it relates to, to Hannah. Uh, and so it's very much a, a sexual reference, even though today um, th- that's somewhat debated. And uh, we, we and they say, no, we, you can't do this. But here have uh, the, the host of the house says, have my virgin daughter and, and his concubine, the Levite's concubine, and, and do what you want. But just don't don't harm this man. And lo and behold, they do. Um, they return the concubine. She ends up uh, dying in the wee hours of the morning. And then the Levite, you know, you kind of can go, oh, man, he's he's really wrecked about this injustice. But he really shows a lot of disrespect to, to mm-hmm. this concubine. And, and, and he actually hacks her up and sends her pieces to the four corners of Israel as an a, attempt to be an awakening. It's probably more of a vin, uh, vindication of the sin that's done to him rather than to the Lord. Yeah, and it, it, like you said, it's layered, it's grotesque. You begin with a Levite with a concubine, which in and of itself uh, is it should draw our attention and make us go, okay, now what's happening here? You've got him uh, shown no hospitality, which uh, to pause there, it's a good point, I think, a discussion even in our gospel journey groups. Hospitality is one of the key characteristics of not just Old Testament Judaism, but New Covenant Christianity. Uh, in fact, a hospitality uh, is even uh, an elder qualification. Mm-hmm. Now, thankfully, uh, for, uh, for my wife, who's really gifted in hospitality, I'm very grateful for that. kind of keeps me from being disqualified, I think, <laughs> in that category. But this idea of opening your own home or your possessions to someone else uh, to 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 not engage in that is a much more serious, we could maybe even say crime or transgression, than it would hit us today in our more individualistic society. But it's life and death in this culture uh, a lot of times if you take someone in or not. Yeah, you know, they weren't even supposed to be in Gibeah. They wanted to be in uh, Jebus which is Jerusalem, but it was called Jebus because it was occupied by the Jebusites. So, uh, number one, there's not going to find any hospitality in Jerusalem itself, so they go to this other city that's occupied by the Benjamites. These are our brothers. Uh, We should be able to find hospitality here, and it is life and death. Um, There weren't an abundance of resources and shelter uh, in a different time, and, and he couldn't find it. He just was hanging out in the square, and it took another foreigner to say, let me show you hospitality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, obviously parallel to the gospel, there is, is God coming to earth, uh, opening the door to take us in, you know, we are, are quite literally foreigners as it relates to the, to the kingdom of God and all its perfection and holiness. And yet Christ comes in kind of that ultimate act of hospitality of bringing us home as it were, through his work on the cross. Now, uh, again, this is a small story. It's an excerpt of Judges, and yet it does kind of highlight the depth at which the nation had fallen into. Sin, rebellion, you know, they've lost sight of God's word, of God's law, 
and, and what's happening to them eventually is what God promises. If you depart from my covenant, I will judge you. He's done that time and time again through the book of Judges. And yet, uh, at the end of the book, we still get they're doing what's right in their own eyes. And then a little bit of an idea of there was no king ruling over them. Now, here we have the biblical author starting to set the stage of this next historical advancement in the people of Israel. Now, it's not entirely true that Israel did not have a king. Samuel makes that point later on, which we'll get to. They have had a king. They've always had a king. Uh, uh, God himself was their king. But they wanted, uh, more particularly, a king like the Gentiles. They wanted a king like everybody else. And that goes back to the nations being mixed there in Judges. Uh, And they wanted, instead of them exerting influence through God, their king, and shining a light and being a nation... Um, that God wanted them to be an influence over other nations, they were instead rejecting God and receiving influence over the other nations. And so it's like, yeah, we want to be like the other nations instead of us being like our God who has redeemed us and saved us. Yeah, and instead of being a light to the Gentiles, the Gentiles more served as darkness for them. And there's something in that for us. Uh, Even a discipleship principle or discussion point in our gospel journey groups of you know if you saturate yourself and you surround yourself with uh, influences that pull you away from Christ uh, there's a danger there obviously we need to be engaged in the lives of non-believers and friends of non-believers of course that's certainly true but man if we don't also have that layered in with some good honest christian accountability fellowship and relationship None of us should assume uh, too much of our own ability to reject temptation, sin, darkness. There, there's still something inside of us that gets drawn back to that old, old man, that old person that that Christ has put to death. And it's a slow fade. Um, it, it doesn't happen quickly, um, where we begin to regress into old sin patterns or new sin patterns that maybe we never thought were possible, but the the closer we are connected to God's Word, to God's family, um, the more uh, preservation there is of God's righteousness in our lives and, and, and being able to obey His Word and, and walk in the light as opposed to walking in the darkness. All right, so we move forward. We go from Judges to 1 Samuel. Now, what's missed in that in our field guide in this overview is is not touching on the book of Ruth. Certainly, that does not endorse it as being unimportant. It's a very important book. We won't uh, touch on it uh, much here, except to say it's strategically positioned for a lot of reasons, Uh, one of which is it links the idea of tracing that promise line with Genesis 3.15, the line that uh, comes from Adam to Seth, travels through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, uh, is going to keep going through the tribe of Judah, passed all the way down, and we meet uh, uh, Boaz. Now, Boaz, at the end of Ruth, fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, Jesse fathered David. Now, First and Second Samuel is about to take us through the coronation of Israel's king, first King Saul. Saul will be dethroned and replaced by David. And so the scriptures are priming us to know, hey, we're, you know, this isn't a, a superfluous fact here, this genealogy of David, that we're, we're starting to see the pieces come together. The promised one, the line, the promised line through which the, the, the forever king is going to come through, Boaz, Jesse, 
in David. And so certainly Ruth is worth an immense amount of study. We don't have time here in this overview. So we get from there to 1 Samuel. Samuel being uh, an incredibly important figure in the Old Testament and Old Covenant. And so, uh, uh, but what's interesting is, as God does in so many ways, humanly considered, uh, Samuel himself was a bit of an impossibility. The story begins with Hannah, a barren woman, which is something we've talked about at, at Harvest, and we've prayed over uh, many, many uh, men and women. And so, barrenness is something that uh, afflicts us even today, mm-hmm. and it's a, and something we take very seriously, and it's and it's hurtful, and we can see that. It was hard for Hannah to even go and worship. Mm-hmm. Um, we see um, El- Elkanah give her a double portion, I-, I think maybe to help encourage her to come and worship despite her barrenness. And she attributes that to, to God. And, and then the Lord, after her prayer, answers her prayer and ultimately delivers Samuel. So when you say he's uh, you know, got a long shot to begin with, that is something that's kind of par for the course for the Lord, using those right. that seem uh, less usable. Yeah, God, it seems to be his pattern, certainly, that he brings life in places that it looks impossible. It's, it's, it's counterintuitive. Uh, we see it with Abraham and Sarah. We see it here with Hannah. You ultimately, if I were to say, you know, biblically considered, what's the one place that if you were to look in the scripture and think that there is no life that can come from that would be the cross. And his ultimate example of life coming from the most unexpected of places is actually through death, the death of his son. And so God is is continually weaving this, that God always delivers life real life in miraculous ways that only he can do. And that happens here with Hannah and Samuel. I've thought about this story a lot. Obviously, God's been really kind to uh, my wife and I, uh, to you and Candace as well, um, you know, to give us children. But man, thinking about Hannah, this one thing she longed for, and then she gave it back. Gave it right back after she winged him, but... Oh, actually, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm sure the priest was very happy Yeah, that, you know, Eli was very happy that he she didn't hand her an infant. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. But how much stronger the connection at that point between right. mom and baby? Absolutely. And, you know, and you think, I mean, even now I think my kids are small, you know, four under five years old and, and, and you project forward. Sometimes you think about you know, what, what life may have for them or what it's going to be like when they're, they're this and that. And, uh, uh, and you know, she did that. You know, she 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 thought about, man, if I were to have a kid one day, what would he be like? What kind of you know son or daughter would it be? All these, and then she gets him, nurses him, connects to him. This is a miracle child for her, and then gives her gives him right back to the Lord, which ultimately shows us uh, above all things, Hannah loved the Lord. Hannah loved the Lord, and I don't think she made this vow public. It wasn't as if she tweeted it. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't, she could have just hung on to, uh, to Samuel, you know, she didn't declare this publicly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So she could have hidden it easily, but she didn't. And she asked for the Lord and, and made a vow and, uh, you know, we don't always get what we ask for. 
Uh, I think that's we see that in Scripture all the time, that there are unanswered prayers in terms of the way we want them answered. But in this case, Hannah was granted her wish, and she prayed, and the Lord ultimately was going to use Samuel uh, for his glory, as we'll see in later chapters. Yeah, and it's in, I think, the point, and again, maybe good discussion point in our groups, is God really does give us some good things. The question then becomes, are we actually willing to give those things back? Because for me, God's been really kind. I've got some things in my life that I'd say, man, these are some wonderful. I love the school my kids are at. I've talked about this before. I love my house. I love our little cove and car. I love, love those things. And I think they are gifts from the Lord. I really do. But when I get something like that, I go to great lengths to hold on to them. It doesn't even cross my mind that that may need to be given back because he's given it to me, right? It's mine. How dare you like comfortability, yeah. Jamie? I know he's given it. I mean, he's given this to me, and I love it. But how much more so a, a child that she probably would have loved to have had at home, giving it back to the Lord? It's a it's a great challenge. Look, and it's another great example of this is this is what sets the Bible off. Well, several things. One of the things that sets the Bible off is so unique is this uh, uh, place of of prominence uh, that that. Uh, uh, women hold in scriptural narratives and Hannah is this is not just a story about this is how to be a better mom this is a story about men and women alike Uh, this is a challenge for how much is our heart really rendered unto the Lord that's a good point Jamie and uh, you know I have one daughter Ava and I love sharing with her stories all throughout the Bible, uh, but not just, uh, you know, the stories that highlight female heroes, but stories of, uh, you know, even Rahab and Mary and Martha, Hannah here. Um, and the point being that God can use any heart that's surrendered mm-hmm. to him, any heart that's devoted to worshiping, loving and being surrendered and obeying his voice. We'll see that later in, in, in Samuel 15 about obedience um, is what the Lord is really looking for. And, of course, I use that in a, in a parenting format with my children, of course. Obey. Obey, right. which is uh, like the hardest thing in the world to do. I don't but, ever say that to my kids. Uh, but it's true. It's hard for us to obey the Lord even. And uh, they and if I want them to obey, they got to see me obeying the Lord. So I, I love this, this story of Hannah and her surrender and her willingness to honor Lord with the gifts he's given her. Yeah, she truly is, I think, a remarkable character in the Scriptures. Now, Israel, so Samuel comes on the scene, and he's important. He's going he's gonna to be a, a, a prophet and a judge, and he's going to coronate, uh, anoint the first ever king in Israel's history as far as uh, humanly considered. And he's going to anoint the person he doesn't want to anoint. He's going to anoint someone that he laments anointing. He even weeps before the Lord. And God tells him, essentially, this is me paraphrasing, get up and go do it. You know, why? You know, Samuel took it personally that Israel made this request. And God said, look, they did, they're rejecting me, Samuel. They're not even rejecting you. They're rejecting me. Uh, ultimately, give them what they want. And what did they want? A king like the nations, not like their God. And so how did they pick that king? It had nothing to do with his character, had nothing to do with his leadership experience. 
It had nothing to do if he was a good father, good husband, nothing. They, they picked a leader because he was tall and looked strong and was handsome. That was their qualifications for King of Israel. I think that's exactly why you're in charge of the podcast. You know, you fit those qualifications just with <laughs> Which is that, well, what about the part about not, you know, wanting to be like God? Now, I think there's two things for us to learn kind of from this narrative, or things to apply. Um, one, we could say, hey, we need to be careful. We don't elevate government offices in an unnatural way over over God. And I think that's something to uh, for us to consider. We certainly should pray for, uh, you know, government officials to be like Samuel, like Christ, of course. We need to be engaged in that endeavor. But I think the more important lesson here uh, for us maybe today is uh, we often want to make ourselves the king of our own hearts. And we want to have what we want and how we want it, and when we want it, instead of allowing God to decide the plan for our life, to order our steps, uh, to walk in the Spirit. We want to walk as if we're in charge, and that's a danger in my own life. I have to keep that in check, okay? And so Israel here wants a king like the other nations. They don't want necessarily what God wants. They want what they want, and I have to be careful of that in my life. Well, and they reject here this whole idea of distinction they were supposed to be distinct uh, and yet they forfeit distinction for assimilation they actually want to be more like the world now the same can be true in our church as well is is we have to be careful we're not trying to make christian living an assimilated idea in our culture there should be distinction a difference that is tasted uh, with professing christians that we should live and operate by by a different system than the system of the world. Now, Israel here, they get what they want. They get Saul. Saul's anointed king, and there are some moments where it goes well for him. He defeats the Ammonites. Uh, he, he has some good battles. Uh, uh, kingdom renewed, fights the Philistines. Uh, he really does a good job protecting, fighting, and there's, there's, some, there's some moments of real success for Saul where it looks like this guy may do okay. And then comes... First Samuel 14 and 15, which is really Saul's downfall. You know, uh, he was told to wait, wait, don't go to battle. Uh, Samuel's going to come, sacrifice. Saul doesn't wait. He performs in his, his kind of biggest mistake, uh, probably of his whole uh, uh, kingship, is he, he performs uh, uh, acts of worship that are reserved for Samuel. Samuel was the one that was supposed to do them. Saul kind of takes it upon himself. And what does the Lord say? He says that my spirit's going to depart from you, Saul. And at that point, Saul knows he's been rejected by the Lord, and he never recovers from that point on uh, of that. And so Israel got a king like the nations, which when you get that, you get a king that does not have a heart rendered towards God. And there are a lot of ill effects that come out of that. And, and some certainly some political uh, similarities or parallels for us to consider even as we head into election seasons. Uh, but at the end of the day, um, uh, Saul's greatest downfall was the fact that his heart doesn't seem to ever have really been captured. Yes, he was a Jew, probably even performed all the surface-level religious ceremonies, uh, 
but his heart, his heart itself was not captivated by God. First Samuel fifteen eleven, uh, the Lord says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. He hasn't obeyed. He's not setting his face towards me, seeking my counsel, seeking my will. He's not doing everything I've asked him to do. He failed to totally uh, obliterate the Amalekites. Um, and, and so he's just further rejecting God's full commandments. And he kind of went part of the way. Right, part of the way, part of the way. Uh, and and I think that's an easy pitfall to go into. Well, it's like, look, I'm not that bad. Uh, I, I kind of, I certainly do these things well before the Lord. Uh, but we have to take the totality of Scripture into account. We have to take all of God's orders and decrees and commands and His words right. into account for our lives in terms of our obedience. One in that story, First Samuel 15, that you're referencing, yeah, He doesn't. Until they wipe him out, uh, he kind of takes the king as a little bit of his, I don't know what he'd call, maybe a trophy of battle, doesn't kill him. And God rejects him over this lack of full obedience that you're saying. And I think the point you make is a good one. I think Saul did enough to feel good enough about his relationship with God. Yeah, he says he kept some of the oxen and the sheep in order to provide them as sacrifices. That's right, yeah. Right, and then what's Samuel say? He says, has the Lord uh, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Meaning, like, that, that's all well and good, but he would have rather you obeyed his voice. He says, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. And uh, to put that in a New Testament context uh, a bit great commission says come as of all nations teaching them to obey obey, obey. obedience uh, in discipleship is indispensable uh, you know there's not a single amount of religious activity that can replace just obeying the word of the lord uh, and obedience is not legalism uh, it only becomes legalism when we think we earn something by obeying obeying god's at the heart of the christian life and so we see Saul fall short, God rejects him, and that's going to pave the way as we finish up here on our week six podcast of the gospel journey. That's going to pave the way for the anointing of Israel's greatest king, the one through which the promised seed, the greater king, uh, would come, uh, King David. And what's fascinating, if you look at just his anointing, if you remember, when Samuel anoints Saul, he laments the type of choice they made. When he goes to anoint David, he's looking for the same thing the people were originally looking for in Saul. Appearance. He goes, oh, this must be the one. This must be the one. This must be. And God's going to go through every single son of Jesse to this shepherd boy who's out in the field that Samuel never would have considered. Why? Because only God looks. You know, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Samuel himself had had. Uh, in a bit of a way, fallen victim to the very thing that plagued the Israelites to begin with. Yeah, it's an, a neat story to to see that unfold and see how um, Samuel has almost lost a little bit of sight, and maybe he's frustrated. Maybe he's tired of of just 
being what he seems is the only voice that sort of surrendered to the Lord. I bet it was exhausting. Uh, that's why being a prophet in the Old Testament was not always glorious. And so when he does get to David, uh, yeah, there were seven sons that passed before him. And he's like, is there anyone else? Because the Lord's not uh, the Lord's not revealing it to me. <laughs> Clearly there's something else here. And uh, that's when David comes in. But it actually mentions that David's a kind of a handsome guy, Yeah, uh, that his appearance was good. So his, his heart and his outward appearance were good. But the Lord focuses on the heart, and our heart uh, needs to be the target of our focus in terms of our allegiance and surrender to the Lord. Yeah, and we see First Samuel sixteen seven as Samuel's looking on one of Jesse's sons, uh, Eliab. Samuel Samuel says, "You know, surely this is the one." And God says, "Don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees; man's in the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart." I think it's a good prayer for us to pray with one another, even our discipleship relationships or in our private time with the Lord is, is, is for us, God, help us see as you see, help us see the world as you see it. Help us see lost people as you see them. Help us see our spouses as you see them. Help us see our kids as you see them, our church as you see them, whatever it is. Ourselves. Ourselves. Help you see it. Like help us see as you see. I think so. A, a worthwhile prayer to engage in with the Lord. Yeah. In, in terms of discipling, uh, you need to help those you're discipling understand that principle and be willing to open up your heart to them, to be vulnerable, and allow them to do the same. And then instead of you know, having condemnation or judgment, you walk with each other uh, in order to sharpen each other's hearts towards allegiance to the Lord. Hey, Wes, thanks for being here this week. Appreciate it.